you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let's turn them to Matthew chapter 19 and finish the chapter that we began a couple weeks ago. Page 824 in the Black Bibles around you, if you're not accustomed or used to using the Bible, um, the chapter numbers are the large numbers, and then there's small little numbers next to the verses. Those were added several years after the Bible was written um, to help us find our way. So hopefully you can find page 824 in the Black Bibles or chapter 19, starting in verse 16, and this last section of the chapter, I think, continues a lot of several themes, but it has many puzzling questions. If you think about it, we started chapter 19 a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about divorce, remarriage, singleness, all kinds of very challenging issues, and then you're like, woof, as a pastor, we got through that, maybe, hopefully, hopefully we survived, And then you open up this next story and you realize, wow, I don't know. I might want to go back to the divorce topic. And uh, the amount of questions that pop off the page when you read this story uh, make it quite a challenge. So let me just point them out and hopefully it'll create some tension in the room and tension in the text because I think there's plenty of it. And then we'll uh, work through it and hopefully we'll resolve some of that tension. So if you start, just looking at the text, first thing you see in verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him. So here's a man. We find out that he's rich, that he's young, and that other gospel writers call him a ruler. So here's this young, rich ruler, and he comes up to Jesus. And he says, teacher, or he says, rabbi. And Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher in his Jewish world at that time. And he asks, what good deed must I do to have eternal life. And I want you to just imagine that you're at work, you're at your house, and a neighbor pops by, or you're somewhere around town, and randomly, uh, somebody, maybe you know them, maybe you don't, but they ask a similar question. Hey, what do I need to do to have eternal life? What do you think your answer would be? And for a lot of you in the room, I think your answer would be, well, it's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. It's about Jesus. It's about what he has done. That's the whole paradigm shift. So many of us are focused on what we're going to do to try and make ourselves in the world. The Bible and the gospel is telling you what God did. And that shift in your mind and that shift in your heart, oh, that changes everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. Does that sound about right, something along those lines? But that's not what Jesus says. Verse 17, And he, being Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Not what I was expecting. Tension number one. What do we do with Jesus' response to this opening question? Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Sounds very much like, looks like I got a list of things to do. I need to obey some commands. And it's reinforcing this idea that my standing before God 
is on the basis of what I do. But the tension doesn't stop there. I mean, if that was it, it would be like, well, this is a slightly challenging text, but it gets better. It doesn't. I mean, the text gets better, but the tension increases. Follow along. He says in verse 18, uh, which ones, which commandments, that is. And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And so at this point, he's five to nine in the Ten Commandments, but not in that order. Six, seven, eight, nine, then back to five. And then he adds another commandment from Leviticus, notice, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the commandments I'm talking about. And so then, he says, the young man, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you have, sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Tension number two. Does Jesus demand that we be perfect? Does he demand that we sell everything we have? Is this a command just for this guy? He's maybe got like a little money problem, and so this is just a specific singular incident with Jesus, or is this something that all of us should hear this morning? All of you, if you want to have eternal life, sell everything you have, all of it, and go follow Jesus. Keep reading, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Tension number three. What is Jesus' point about the camel and the needle? And is there an actual gate called the, e, the e, eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem where camels would actually go through and it's really hard and that's what he's referring to? Or is the word camel that you see there very similar to another word that means rope or some sort of cord? And so the Greek language, you read it and you see like, well, those words are really similar. So does he just mean it's really hard for a rope to go through a needle? And maybe some of you have heard that taught before. I know I have. I've been in church for pretty much my whole life. And so I remember pastors telling me that that's what this text is about. Jesus is saying that it's, it's hard, it's difficult for rich people. It's kind of like a camel trying to squeeze through a small gate called the eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem, or that maybe it's a translation issue, and it's actually not camel, it's rope. Let's keep reading. Then Peter said in reply, 
See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me. Will You who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and last first. Tension number four. Do you see in verse 28, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, and many of you might, if you're using these black Bibles, have a little number next to it, a very small number, and it is uh, a footnote. And it drops your eyes down to the very bottom, and then the editors of the Bible tell you that in the Greek, the phrase that is being used here is a Greek word called regeneration, or the renewal of all things. It is a word used in Stoic philosophy. If anybody knows the word like, oh, that person seems rather Stoic, it's because Stoicism is a philosophy in the first century around the time of Jesus that was really popular. And it just meant that no matter what happened, you should just stay kind of the same. No highs, no lows, just kind of wherever you are, stay right in the middle. And that's part of it, and there's more to it. And the point being, Stoicism used this phrase a lot to talk about how the world would go through cycles and it would be regenerated or the world would kind of be renewed. Think of maybe Eastern religions, reincarnation, cycles of the world happening and going, and Jesus uses that word. Does Jesus believe in Stoicism? Is he a Stoic? I thought he was a Jew. Why did he use that word? Welcome to my world as a preacher. Here you go. There's four tensions, and that's just the ones right off the surface, I think. We could dive into more, naturally, but I think those will suffice for today. So, how are we going to make sense of these things and these questions and these tensions? There's the text. I don't want to hide around things and kind of like avoid stuff. We want to present the Bible as it is. And hopefully we can be transparent about that. The big idea. Here's how I'm making sense of this story and text. One Simple, big idea. You've heard it already today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The more I thought about this story and these tensions, and especially some of the debates that have happened about this story amongst Christians and scholars and Bible teachers, pastors, Is Jesus teaching salvation by works? Is this different than the rest of the New Testament? Is there like a work salvation with Jesus? And Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, you're saved by grace alone, through your faith, not by works. That's Ephesians 2.8. That seems, what's Jesus saying here versus what Paul says? The Bible contradicts itself, ha. I think The big idea for you and for me, and this is my thesis statement for you, is that blessed are the poor in spirit, 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven is a great summary of this story, number one. But number two, the Sermon on the Mount is all over this story. You can summarize the Sermon on the Mount with this story. There are links to similar words, concepts, or phrases. And in fact, I think the whole Sermon on the Mount is kind of crammed in to this story. Maybe deliberately by Matthew, but even if it's not deliberate, it's just this is the ethic, the message, the values of the kingdom of God that are in the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and then you look at this story, you're like, whoa, that's Jesus. This, this corresponds very well with Jesus' most famous popular teaching in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. So if you're not familiar with Matthew or Jesus' teaching, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's Jesus' most popular, famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount because he got up on the top of a hill and he sat down and he taught his disciples, and it's like his manifesto for the kingdom of God. And it begins with this line, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's your outline. Point one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Point two, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hopefully you remember that one, friends. Big idea, sermon outline, all wrapped up together for hopefully making sense of difficult tensions. Sometimes simplicity and clarity will help. So let's take them one at a time. First, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, in Matthew chapter 5, is in the section of the Beatitudes, and it's the who of the kingdom. Who is blessed in Jesus' kingdom? Who is the kind of people that he accepts? Who are the kind of people that he invites? Who are the kind of people that thrive in the kingdom of heaven? It's a who question. It's an in and out question. Who's in if you want to be in the Jesus crowd? Who's out? Jesus says in Matthew 5, the poor in spirit are blessed. Now it's been a little while since we've gone over the Sermon on the Mount and maybe that particular point in text, but blessed is the word that means happiness in its most simple form. It means human flourishing, one commentator and scholar argues. It means that all is really good at its most deepest, most fundamental thing. There can be bad things going on, like Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. Oh, it doesn't mean that you've got everything that you could imagine in this moment, but you can have a blessed state, and you can be in the in of the kingdom and not the outside looking in of the kingdom, even if you're poor, even if you're mourning, even if you are being persecuted. Even if you're in the middle of a fight and you're trying to be a peacemaker, blessed are those people. That's what our story is telling us. It's a question about who. Notice the way that Matthew tells this story right after what? Look at your Bibles. Children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. To such belongs. They are on the in. Jesus is saying, don't hinder them. Bring them in. I want them close. They are in. They're poor. No value. No rights. Seen as low in society. 
Next story. By the way, Matthew is not the only one that does this. All three synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three books of the New Testament. If you read through all of them, you'll find a story about Jesus with children and then this rich young man back to back. It's a question of who. Jesus says yes to the children and a rich man, no. Startling. Like, very startling. That's the way the disciples respond. Do you remember that part of the text? When he says, and it says in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were startled, greatly astonished, knocked their socks off. What? Couldn't believe it. Who then can be saved? It's a who question. This story and the whole thing about what Jesus is doing is trying to say who. And look at the way the story ends. The first will be last. And the last will be first. If that's not trying to sum up a little bit of the who and the point that's being driven through the whole thing, then I don't know what else is because when we come back next week, Lord willing, look over at chapter 20 and look at the next paragraph. It's a story that Jesus tells about a vineyard worker. And look at the very last line, Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. Do you think, possibly, would you be open to the idea that Matthew, through his organization of these stories, is trying to teach you the values of the who in the kingdom? Blessed are the poor in Jesus' kingdom, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This story is about who truly is blessed in God's kingdom, and to their great astonishment, it's not the one that looks blessed. It's not the man who has it all together. It's not the one who's rich and young and healthy and doing well. The disciples are greatly astonished because if this man can't be saved, then who else can? What do you mean? If this man can't be saved, what's so great about this man? That's why it's contrasted with little, insignificant, unnamed children, rich, young ruler. First, he's a man. And this is not a sexist point. I'm not endorsing this viewpoint the Bible isn't either. Jesus doesn't. We've talked about this plenty at this at church. But just to make sure it's clear, the world that Jesus lived in, if you were a man, that was better. It was just better in every which way. That's how they thought about things. He was a man. So if anybody's going to make it into the kingdom, well, men will. At least certain kind of men. I don't know about the women, but maybe the men. That's the viewpoint of those people. Not me. Not embassy church. We clear? He was a man. Two. He was young. He wasn't old. He wasn't dying. He was healthy. Young in this text means he's anywhere from late teens to early 30s. That's what's meant by young. Late teens, early 30s. He's a man. He's young. He's wealthy. If you have wealth and you're in the Jewish worldview, and you've already thought these other things, he's a man, he's young, he's wealthy, then 
he's blessed. It's simple. It's just the retribution principle, if you've ever heard that phrase. It's a concept, like an equation, that their minds, this is the way they filtered life. That person's wealthy, ah, God's blessing them. They have the favor of God. They are blessed. If somebody's life is horrible, like terrible things start happening, what's the conclusion of the equation? You are cursed. It's that simple. If you've never read the Old Testament, you've never heard of this book, it's called Job. It's long. But it, it is all about this point. It is that there is a general concept that people think, if I do good, well, then I'm going to get blessed. If I do bad, well, then I'm going to get cursed. So then you can look at it either which way. If I want to get blessing, well, I better do good. If I want to get cursing, and I don't want to get cursing, I guess you could say. If I don't want to get cursing, well, then I better not do bad. So then look at it from the other side. If you looked at just the outcomes and said, that person has a lot, well, why? Because they've been doing good. And then if they don't have a lot or it's all been taken away from them, well, it's because they're so bad. And that's exactly the mindset to which Job's friends counsel him and tell him, you must have done something wrong. That spirit, that theology is rooted in the disciples' question, if that guy isn't going to get saved, then who can? Because obviously he is blessed. He has so much. God has favor on him. So he's a man, he's young, he's wealthy, which means he has the blessing of God. And he's a ruler of some kind, which our text doesn't say, but as I mentioned, you read in Mark or Luke, Luke calls him a ruler. Many people think he's probably a pharisaical ruler because of the last and final fifth point about this man. He is moral. He is a moral man. Notice the exchange between him and Jesus. First, He's calling Jesus good. He's coming up to him and he's saying, what, what do I need to do? I'm willing to do whatever it takes. He's, he seems to have the right heart in the beginning of the story. He then is asked, are you obeying the commandments? And Jesus lists off several of the Ten Commandments and loving your neighbor. And he's like, yep, I'm doing those. And some people like to read this story and like assume the worst about this young man. I want to encourage you to read it and assume the best. Who's to say he's not doing a pretty good job at these commands? Several of them aren't that hard, you know? Not, not that they're not that hard, but like a lot of you in this room have not committed adultery. A lot of you in this room haven't murdered somebody. A lot of you aren't stealing every day or something like that. I mean, like there's a lot of these who be like, you know, if I were to look right now in my life, I'm doing okay on some of these commands. I love my neighbor well. Like, and, and like this rich young ruler, you could say, I'm a moral person. Like I live a good life. And so the fact that he's wealthy matches the fact that he's probably a good guy. He did not get his money. Here's another way to read this. He did not get his money because he swindled people. He wasn't a jerk. He wasn't a crook. He didn't lie, cheat, or steal to get his money. He was a faithful, honest, hardworking man, and he has blessing because he was a good hard worker. And so he's rich, and he's a ruler, he's moral, he's a good guy. Do you notice in the story, Jesus doesn't actually say, well, actually, because I'm God in the flesh, I know that you're not a good guy. He just goes on, okay, you've kept these things. All of these I've kept. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, this is another good 
parallel about a pharisaical mindset. He says, as it pertains to the law, I was blameless. Jewish people talked like this. And it just simply means they were good, morally upright, obeying kind of Jewish people. Good Torah keepers. That's what this guy is. And so that's why it is so astonishing that out of all of the stories of the gospel, this is the only story where you have somebody leaving Jesus sad. Earlier this week, I was at our Rand Grove outreach, and one of the ladies there made a comment and said, every time people come to Jesus, he brings joy. And in my mind, I'm like, I know what she's saying, and it's pretty much true. But then in the back of my mind, I was like, but there is this one time where somebody comes to Jesus and it does not lead to joy. Joy to the world. Jesus came to the world and it brings joy. Not this man. There's some people that leave Jesus and they're mad and they hate him and they want to kill him and eventually they do if you keep reading the story, right? But this is the only one, the only one I know of, where somebody leaves and it says they were sad. But sad is is not strong enough. Sorrowful is what our text says. Grieving is probably the best translation. He grieved. It was a death for him to consider the demand that Jesus asked him. So what do we make of that first tension Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Pastor Phil, I'm following you. I get it. This is a story about who's in the kingdom. Children are in. The outcasts are in. The lady that's bleeding and been ostracized from society, she's in. The Syrophoenician woman, she's in. The boy with the demon possession, he's in. Keep thinking about the people Jesus has met up to the 19 chapters of Matthew, and you're like, in, 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 and it's poor in spirit who's out. Why does Jesus say this to this guy? And some want to just say, well, he's answering this question by saying, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And then Jesus responds by saying, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you're going to enter life, keep the commandments. By saying, see, he's playing a trick on him. And I don't think this is wrong, but I think it is, it is quickly pushing off what Jesus is saying. I think we should take Jesus' words as he's saying, if you're going to have eternal life, you're going to live in the kingdom of heaven, you're going to obey the commandments. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes begin in the first 12 verses. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Then he says, let your light shine so that all the world will see your good deeds. And then the thesis statement of the whole sermon, as I argued when we worked through it, is what? Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. 
You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust at a woman, you have already committed adultery in her heart. You have heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, if you hate, you have already committed murder in your heart. You have heard it said. Do you guys remember that part? And then how does it end? How does chapter 5 end with that section about, you have heard it said, but I say to you, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The same exact word we find in our text. Doesn't it seem like what Jesus is doing is teaching us who's blessed in the kingdom, and he sees a rich young man, and he tells them that the demand to be a part of the kingdom is above the scribes and the Pharisees. So he starts with the law, which is what the scribes and Pharisees are consumed with. And if this guy is a ruling Pharisee, then he's keeping these laws. He really is. Really well. It's life to him. This is everything. The way to get the blessing of God, the way to bring the full reign of God's rule on the earth is through obeying the Torah. It's life. And Jesus is going to press in, yup, but I'm going to surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. You have heard it said, but now I say to you, sell everything that you have and come follow me. Because to follow Jesus is to abandon all. It is to abandon everything about your dreams and passions and commitments and loyalties, everything for every Christian. And in that sense, I don't think this is just a particular call to a particular man who has a a particular greed problem. This is a universal, general call. Following Jesus means complete abandonment of everything that you have thought prior to meeting Jesus. So many people want Jesus to help them with their dreams, help them with their goals and visions, and Jesus says, I have nothing to do with that. You are outside of my kingdom if that's the way you think. Blessed are the poor in spirit who come and say, I've got no dreams, I've got no plans, I've got no visions, they're yours. That's a very different way to approach Jesus. Those people are in. They're little children, dependent on their moms and dads because they've got nothing. This man has everything, and he wants Jesus to help him get the next little thing to put him over the top. That's what the question's about, and that's what the dialogue is about. Notice this phrase. This is an extremely important interpretive phrase. He says in verse 20, All these I have kept, but what do I still lack? It sounds honest, it sounds genuine, and it probably is. The problem is that he wants to keep his system for how he's going to approach God and say, all right, Jesus, but what else do I need to do? What's the one extra thing to help me, put me over the edge to feel a sense of security before God and my standing before him? And Jesus says, you must be perfect. The word perfect is not I think always the most helpful English word because I think every time I talk to you all and normal people that use English every day, we think of different ideas about perfect. It's just a loaded word. The word is telos in the Greek. The word telos means completion, fullness. It means maturity. It means that there's a set of something and it's like, oh, you're lacking something. And then to finish the set, here's what you need. And that's what this man is thinking. I've been working so far in my life, and I haven't quite finished the set. I'm lacking something. What is that? 
And he says, in order for you to finish your set, I need you to get rid of the whole set. (laughs) Sell everything. Follow me. And the man was grieving as if he just lost his mom or his dad or his wife or his brother or his sister. He grieved. He wept. Meeting Jesus for some of you will feel just like that. I remember the first time I was in a church and I was explaining that sometimes meeting God is not just like, whoa, hallelujah, everything's great, I'm happy, everything's good, Jesus forgives my sin, but a crushing feeling of I am a a proud, proud person and I'm being humbled to the dust. And I remember preaching that message at a church in Chicago, Edgewater Baptist Church, and a guy came up to me and he said, thank you. Thank you for explaining that sometimes meeting God is like that because that's exactly what it was like for me. Forty years of my life, I thought I had it figured out, and then I met Jesus, and it flipped my world around. My plans, my dreams, my theology, my philosophy, my way of viewing the world, and it crushed me. It was not pleasant. It got pleasant, but first, it was painful. What needs to die? in order for you to follow Jesus fully. The kingdom is people whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is stating, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you are, and then fill in Paul's list from 1 Corinthians 6, a swindler, an idolater, a homosexual, a this, a that. And he just goes on this long list. Read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you are these kind of people. And then he says, but that's what some of you were. But you've been washed. You've been changed. You've been sanctified by the power of the gospel. Your righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, but it won't because, be because of you. That's the difference. We don't need to soften what Jesus is saying. He is demanding righteousness at a high, high level to this man and an upside-down view of everything in his world. Don't try and water down Jesus here. But know that the next half of the story tells you how. We got the who. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How? How can poor, weak, got nothing going on, not everything's all together, but no, we've got nothing going on well in our life. How do those kind of people have righteousness that exceeds the scribe and Pharisees? How do those people have lives that are mature and complete and blessed? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's our second point. And I think if you were to summarize the first part of the story, it's an engagement with Jesus on the who. It's not who you think. It's not the rich, the pretty, the wealthy, and the mighty, and the strong, and the politician types that look good on TV and on billboards, and whatever the world prizes is like, yes, this is success. These people are blessed by God. Jesus is constantly pressing in, hammering down. No, no, no. That's not who. So now we need to figure out the how. 
And so in verse 23 and following, we see that the kingdom of heaven is what is offered, and this is the how. And it's, it's wrapped up in this one simple little line in verse 25. But Jesus looked at them after they said, well, then who can be saved? This was a waste of our time. Why are we following you around? This is an impossible task. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's the how. It is possible. Your righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and I would go so far to say it will. Maybe not right this second, but at some point, God will begin a good work in you, and he will complete that work. Finish it. Mature it. The set will be done. So it's not just a I'm, he, Jesus is just giving a, a high standard so that you then feel like, wow, I really need God here. That's true. It really does work that way. But don't stop there. High, high standard. You feel like, that's impossible. Then realize, but Jesus says, but it is possible with me. Do you, do you see the logic here? You will have the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they will have the kingdom. They will have God. They will have him who makes all things possible. And so in case any of you were wondering, I don't know if this was one of those tensions that you're like, that one's not much of a tension. Because to me, it's quite laughable. The camel going through the eye of the needle as being a little gate in Jerusalem, A, historically, there is no data. So this is one of those kind of myths that just kind of popped out of nowhere. There is no gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, as far as we can tell from history. So if you've ever heard that preached, it's baloney. The idea of a camel taking off its pack and its people and getting down and shimmying on all fours and going through, like seriously, that's what Jesus is talking about? It's more laughable than that. Jesus is taking the largest animal of the day and the smallest hole that he could imagine and saying, it is difficult like a camel going through the eye of an actual needle. And then that's when the disciples say, this doesn't seem possible. And he's like, exactly. And the person saying possible, impossible is not the disciples, it's Jesus. So however you read the camel and the eye of the needle, it needs to match the very words of Jesus, which is we're talking about things that are impossible versus things that are possible. And with man, it is impossible for your righteousness to succeed the scribes and the Pharisees. It is impossible on your own to obey the law and the Torah and the Ten Commandments and Love your neighbor as yourself. Impossible to do that on your own. But with God, all things are possible. Righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, possible. Being telos or perfect or complete or whole, it's possible with God. With God, Christmas was made possible. Do you remember what Mary said when she found out she was pregnant in Luke chapter 1? How can this be? I have never been with a man. And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Do you know the next line? 
for nothing will be impossible with God. Wednesday morning when you wake up and it's Christmas Day and you start saying Merry Christmas and sending out text messages and whatever else you do on your Christmas Day, remember, Christmas is about impossible things becoming possible with God. There is no Christmas without impossible things being made possible with God. A virgin birth is possible with God. Forgiveness of sins is possible. All of them, any of them, past ones, present ones, future ones, possible. It's possible. A change of heart is possible with God. Who are you not praying about right now because you think they are too far off from God? Who are you thinking right now that if I really believed this, I would pray for their soul? This week at Wednesday prayer time, one of our church members said that they, for a while, were struggling on praying for somebody and that like this week, right? This week? Somebody came to faith in Jesus that was like the hardest of heart that you would have like, no, there's no chance they could ever actually love God and Jesus and have this kind of transformation happen. Impossible. Oh, we of little faith. How many times do we need to be reminded that with God, all things, the hardest of hearts, the farthest of hard to reach places, any challenge for the gospel is made possible because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of the kingdom. Rich men can become generous. And in the world sense, I'm looking around at a bunch of rich men and women right here in front of me. Comparatively to the rest of the world, we're a bunch of rich men and comparatively, we're more on the younger side. Well, so here we are, rich, young men and women. It's difficult, Jesus says, it's difficult for you when you've got everything going well to need God. How many of you, when you look at your testimony, look back and say, yeah, there was this season where things were just going good and I just either neglected going to church or neglected God or didn't care about God and then I got brought back to God because I was made low. I was humbled and I realized, oh yeah, I can't do this on my own. Do you believe that it is impossible to inherit eternal life without God? Do you believe that? A lot of Christians don't, so I'm not asking this just rhetorically. I literally want to, th to have us think about this. There's a lot of Christian people that teach that the gospel makes it possible for anybody to be saved. Meaning that when Jesus died, it made it an offer that was available, and so therefore it's up to us. It's up to us. The Spirit of God doesn't have to do a work in someone's heart. They just need to decide if they want Jesus or not. That just doesn't seem to square with what Jesus is saying. With man, it's impossible. But with the Spirit of God, it's possible. So do you believe that? Do you believe it's impossible to inherit eternal life to know God, to be a Christian, or do you just think you've got to figure that stuff out first and then you become a Christian?
That's not how it works. Do you believe that it is possible with God? And how would your prayer life, as we mentioned, how would your spending, how would your time, how would your life look different this week, this day, this 2020 new year, if you truly believed all things were possible by the power of God? Do you know right now that you have the kingdom? You are an inheritor of that kingdom now, that you have treasure banked in heaven. It's like a bank. Why do you put money in the bank? So you get it later. That's what that's about. Treasure in heaven is about saying we're banking on later. Are you banking on now? Or are you banking on later? Delayed gratification or instant immediate gratification? Which of those two concepts is more common in your everyday? Spending, texting, phone, internet usage, instant, immediate, need it now? Or delayed, patient, silent, still? Treasure in heaven. Are you storing up treasures in heaven? It's possible for you to live differently because the already now reality of the kingdom is here. The things that Jesus is talking to them about were not yet fully what they are now. So look at verses 28 and following. Jesus said to them, Truly I said to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's conclude our time this morning with that fourth tension that I pointed out, the stoic word, word that Jesus used that's translated the new world, um, the word is two words put together, pala and then genesis. Pala is the word for again, and genesis is the word for creation. So put the two together. What is the word? New creation, or as it's translated here, a new world, a new birth, creation happening again. Now, I don't believe Jesus is a Stoic. I think Jesus is a Jew as he's saying these things. And he is using Jewish language all throughout the rest of this story. But here he adopts a common word in the Greek language and a common concept of Stoic philosophy and applies it for his Jewish purposes. That's my interpretation of it. Paul the Apostle in Titus chapter 3 uses the same word. It's only used twice in the whole New Testament. Here by Jesus to talk to his disciples and Paul in Titus chapter 3. But there Paul says that the palagenesis, the new birth, happens in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is Paul saying? He's taking the concept of what Jesus taught 
and he's applying it to you right now through the Spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is. Is now. Right now, you have the new world in you. You have the new creation started in your heart. We have the new creation evidenced in this room. We have the kingdom of God, heaven on earth, embassies of heaven, outposts of the kingdom. Every time you're experiencing the love of Jesus, every time you're hearing his word and it's obeyed, every time we gather and we sing, every time that you experience the message and the goodness and the love of God, you are experiencing the kingdom here, now, as the Spirit's at work. And the new creation has already started in your heart and in the world. And it's spreading across the world. And there are people who hear the message of Jesus and the call to follow him, and they go, yes. Even when it crushes them, even when there's a death, they say, yes, because it's better. Think about all that you have right now, all of your possessions. What if you could times them by 100? Would you take that deal? Would you think that's a good deal? I'm an investment strategist, and I'm trying to think. Is this a good investment? You'd be a fool. You'd be a fool. If you think, no, I'm just going to keep what I got. I could times what I have by a hundred. I could times my family, my children. I could times my wealth, my physical material inheritance by a hundred. Would you take that? Jesus is offering it. But you got to sell everything. And whatever that might look for you might be different for the person sitting next to you, but we're all selling everything. And we're saying, I went in on that deal. The reason that this is possible is because 2,000 years ago, there was a rich, young ruler who gave up all of his riches to become a little infant baby boy in a feeding trough in the backwoods of Bethlehem, growing, growing up in Nazareth where nobody of any significance comes from. You could call him poor in spirit, but he was blessed. For in him was the kingdom of God. In his very being, he manifested and displayed the kingdom. And in the same way that this rich young ruler was confronted with the demands of eternal life, so this rich young ruler, Jesus the Christ, he felt the sorrow and the grief of death. In order for the poor in spirit to inherit the kingdom of God, there must be a death. And this rich young ruler in our story in Matthew chapter 19, experienced the death but no resurrection. Jesus, the Christ, the rich one. And why do I say he's rich? Because he had everything. And he left his throne from heaven. And he humbled himself. And he took on the form of a lowly servant. And he died. He lost it all. He does not call this rich young ruler to anything that he himself 
hasn't already done. Friends, we're following Jesus because Jesus is a rich, young ruler. In fact, when he's looking at this guy, he's probably the same exact age as him in real human life. But one is trying to accumulate more wealth now, and the other is trying to give it all away. And it culminates as he gives away his very life. So you've got one rich young ruler who is grieving and sorrowful because he wants everything now. And another rich young ruler who's grieving and he's sorrowful, but for very different reasons. For he is gaining all. All authority in heaven and on earth. He is the son of man who's seated on the throne. He is the one that then gives the rest of his disciples, the 12 tribes of Israel, to judge and rule on thrones. Friends, there is so much for us to consider and meditate on in this text, and I hope you will. But this Christmas, may we know that it is impossible with man. But with God, all things are possible, including eternal life. Or is it sometimes better translated, the kingdom of God and the future age of when the world is made new. The new palagenesis where everything is like a brand new start. That's why we sing joy to the world and that's why there's reason to have hope. So let's receive it in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word and this story and for the message and life of Christ. We want to pray, God, that we would be able to receive the help that we need. Help us to know that we are nothing without you and that we need you for everything. We pray, God, that each one of us would consider what areas of our life are not in line with this teaching and this call to follow you. We pray, God, that there would be even greater radical generosity amongst our congregation. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would change hearts that are hard and are proud and are looking for that next thing to help them with their current dreams and value systems and how they're trying to make sense of the world. We're asking God that the Spirit would convict them and help them see, get rid of the dreams. Get better dreams. Get new goals, new ambitions. Get a new spirit in your life. We pray, God, that this would be a multiplying reality in our community, in our church, in our hearts, and that you, God, would finish the work that you have started. There is so much evidence as we look around the room of you doing this work of making things new in our lives. So we praise you for it and we ask for more of it and the continuation of it so that we can give you all the glory and all the praise because we deserve none of it. It's impossible, so we couldn't do it. So we thank you, God, that you did through Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.